All right. Hey, hey, y'all. Back again, uh, this time with Nick Land. So for those uh, kind of, I'm sure everyone's kind of familiar with this guy, uh, you know, with the idea of accelerationism and all that. Uh, but this time, we're not going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about his first essay from his uh, book, Fang Numina, which is a collection of his writings from the mid-80s to the early 2000s. Uh, we're uh, to kind of talk about it for a sec. Noumena is what is called a thing in itself that has a, uh, that comes out of Kant, Immanuel Kant, uh, that also has another meaning to the Greeks, like it's like a representation of a thing, which is weird. But anyways, um, so here we're going to be talking about the first essay there titled Kant, Capital, and the Prohibition of Incest. Now this comes as a request from one of my patrons, uh, Liam. So if anyone else wants to put in throw in some requests like there's a tier for that if you want to do that uh plus a bunch of other fun goals that are worth checking out uh and you know if you can contribute totally great if not that's totally fine too you'll also be able to find a link for the podcast form of this in the description uh which is probably a lot better to listen to than on youtube uh so that's there for you too but without further ado here we have Kant, Capital, and the Prohibition of Incest. So as a general overview of what he's doing here, Nick Land, 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 Kant, Land, Nick Land is trying to imagine why racism exists. And he kind of locates it to various Enlightenment ideas, especially the ideas of, of Immanuel Kant. So he then, to kind of continue on this general overview, he goes from Kant to the kind of logic of late industrial capitalism that exploits people and how that exploitation kind of benefits off of a um, perpetual discrimination of people considered other, which are often, you know, racialized minorities, people who fall other to the metro metropolis West, as he kind of puts it. Now he says, in relation to these things, the idea of the nation serves the end of promoting uh, this type of racist uh, discrimination. So he questions any attempt to kind of oppose this globalized system with a thing called like nat national sovereignty, with a kind of na um, a kind of national system that is meant to oppose it, because he says that that system is always already oppressive. And then he opposes that with his own reading of Deleuze and Guattari. So their idea of a kind of rhizomatic um, challenge to these galvanizing and solidifying modes of discrimination that we'll get into, you know, in more detail. So he begins by talking about the South African apartheid, where he says that with the apartheid, what was happening was a simultaneous exclusion of black people from, you know, white spaces, as well as as a, a, a kind of simultaneous inclusion. Now, what does that mean? Well, he says that in many ways, politically, black people were sent out, but they were reintegrated into the economic system for their labor. So there's a, both a simultaneous othering and inclusion. So in response to this, there was the idea of a kind of Bantistan, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Bantistan uh, solution that would have kind of formulated a black-only state sovereign, sovereign nation there, which Land says 
like, okay, sure, if that's what you think you need to do, you need to do it. But he says what that might actually result in is kind of confining labor to a specific pole in relation to the kind of Western, uh, you know, economic capitalist machine. So he's like, we have to be very careful, you know, in implementing these types of measures just because, you know, it might result in greater exploitation. And that by creating a kind of space for oneself in that way would only reaffirm the logic of a kind of self and other that the Western metropolis so very um, eloquently demonstrates or so very uh, willingly maintains. So the bigger overall problem for land is, you know, the logic of capitalism itself that he says, coming out of Marx, rallies against the masses. That is, it it dis distributes the masses in such a way as to render some people productive, some people exploitable, some people, you know, it's almost slaves, pretty much, uh, that serves the end of, you know, absolutely destroying what people can be. So capitalism is effective for land at keeping itself going despite this clear oppressive track that it's on, its trajectory, by displacing its crises from itself. So it goes to um, some part of the globe, it exploits them, casts them into economic and political turmoil, and then the capitalist system that promoted that is able to say, look, we didn't do this. These people were, I don't know, were already messed up. They already had their political problems, and therefore we can't be blamed for this. And it is by virtue of that that it always displaces its guilt or responsibility onto an other that is able to wipe its hands of guilt. It is able to then move on to just pick up and go to another place to exploit. Now, this is very much part of Deleuze and Guattari's critique when they consider the way that capitalism moves around to various places to find new markets for exploitation. Meanwhile, while other ones kind of build up like new resources discovered somewhere or whatever then it will leave the market it's at go over to the other one and suck out those resources and then it continually moves around and that is effective because then it can you know screw up so many places in the globe but it can also dump off its own garbage it quite literally like where it dumps you know no garbage is dumped on trump's golf courses like it's very specific where these were trash produced by the United States is dumped. It's dumped in third world countries. It's dumped in, uh, you know, non-human inhabited oceans. So capitalism, to do this very effectively, relies on the idea of the nation, the nation state, to facilitate these kind of movements of, from market to market. Whereas if these nation states weren't so nearly de uh, neatly demarcated, that is, neatly established, then they wouldn't be so effectively... Uh, capitalism wouldn't be so effective at being able to move from one to the other because we wouldn't have the kind of knowledge mechanism necessary to even recognize where profit could be extracted from. So this is how this nation state is complicit with the movement of capital. So, and this is where Land uh, provides his own kind of contribution here. He says that this logic is what forms part of the base. So here we think of the Marxist base and superstructure where for Marx, the base is reserved for the relations of uh, production, the you know raw materials necessary for production, the factory, uh, labor force, all of that, 
Whereas on top of that, the superstructure is where we see ideology, it's where we see culture, it's where we see religion, it's where we see education, it's where we see uh, healthcare, stuff like that. Now, traditionally, something like racism would exist in the superstructure as being a consequence of a certain kind of base, uh, a kind of base dynamic, like slavery, for instance. Where Land wants to say, it seems like racism is what gives um, capitalism its potential in the first place. Where if there wasn't a racist uh, mentality, that is a mentality that saw someone that wasn't the same as being inferior, then we wouldn't have this desire to go over there and exploit them. So an example we can use to think of this a little better is that you don't have... Uh, United States rolling into Canada with tanks to take over the oil they have. Why is that? Well, we could give one hypothesis, and that is, according to the Canadian national imaginary, like, Canadians are white. Canadians are white people. Canadians are somewhat wealthy people. Uh, and so the United States has no stake in that. So it's in this way that land is trying to in a sense, disturb the easy split between the superstructure and the base. Now, he's not the first to do that. Like, even Marx himself provided a kind of uh, circular dynamic to the base and superstructure, where the base enforces the superstructure, which then enforces the base, right? And then Louis Althusser and Gramsci or other people that took this on. Uh, but what, what Land is doing that I think is uh, special is that he's redefining what actually constitutes the base here, including elements of what was once reserved for the superstructure, that is like racism. Now he adds to all of this a patriarchal dynamic, or what he calls a kind of patrilineal system that pro prohibits uh, kind of, or, or is very incestual, sorry, in that it maintains a kind of um, recognition within itself. So by virtue of that, it kind of galvanizes and freezes the other. So we see a system predicated upon, you know, father figures being in positions of authority that pass that authority down through, you know, their white sons that goes down through, through that, which creates a sense of kind of inner identity being white male, which is very incestual for Nick Land. Um, that then serves the end of galvanizing and freezing the image of the other. So we think of an example of this is when people refer to African nations, they don't refer to the nation, they just say Africa. Like, as though it's just a homogenous entity, you know, the dark continent, like that place that is just the image that we have of it. It's no more than that, right? It, we totally erase the fact that there are huge differences between nations and even within nations like there's no set agreement there so what this does is reaffirm the idea of a kind of solid unchanging other that can then more easily be exploited so this system is demonstrably different from a kind of simple colonial one which he condemns like he says the colonial one is obviously bad but he wants to recognize that we are within something else now. And that thing is what he calls the pat a patriarchal neocolonial capital accumulation. That is the system we find ourselves in. 
So in contrast to this, uh, he, he places just the colonial efforts. Now he says that with colonialism, there was almost a potential for a kind of destabilization of the metropolis. And we, there, were, there were many examples of this where um, colonizers would go to a place and there'd be a kind of hybrid exchange of identities there. Because, you know, by being physically present, it demanded an interaction with culture in a way that uh, the present system doesn't allow. Because the present system, just using capital as a proxy, that is, it works through capital, it doesn't actually have to come in contact with those people. And therefore, it um, erases that possibility of a destabilization of the metropole's kind of values. So for a text that really deals with this, and one that I've done on here, is uh, Homi Baba's The Location of Culture, where he outlines that in the colonial interaction, there's often a kind of giving and taking occurring that we can't really forget. Now, I should say, this isn't at all uh, a way to defend colonialism. It's just disturbing the idea that people who are colonized are just, you know, um, suffering um, subjects that have no autonomy on their own. So it, it demands us to kind of rethink that kind of narrow framework. So anyways, all this to say that for land, this new system doesn't allow that kind of interaction that might disturb our understanding or our, the metropole's understanding of themselves and the other. So this has a very fundamental connection for land to the ideas that came out of modernity or the enlightenment, where he takes Kant's idea of the a priori as the kind of um, example of this par excellence. So what he means by that is that the West has a, has a desire to change, but to always be the same. What the hell does that mean? This means that the West is always apt to learn about the other, always apt to learn about things it can exploit, because it has to have some kind of auxiliary knowledge of something that it's going to exploit before it can do it. But it doesn't want to risk kind of getting in there, kind of being involved with um, the, the, the other. So he says that this is a kind of, it then takes upon itself, that is the West takes upon itself an a priori approach. Now for those that aren't familiar, an a priori approach is one that completely uh, removes itself from any experience. So it comes down to armchair philosophers thinking their way through these problems. So they don't come in contact with the other, they just think about the other in an a priori way. That is, they universalize the other. They make the other something that can be comprehended purely with thought, not with experience. So in Kant, and this comes out of David Hume especially, uh, for those that don't know, Kant begins his first critique, that is the critique of pure reason, which I've done on here, be worth checking out, um, by kind of re-establishing differences between forms of knowing. So he says that there are a priori uh, modes of reasoning that I've already kind of established here that are contrasted with a posteriori. And those are modes of knowing that come directly from experience. Now, what Kant tried to do, or did, I think, fairly effectively in the critique of pure reason, was he was trying to bridge the two, where for a long time, people thought either we can know the world only through experience, that is a posteriori, or what he also calls synthetic judgments, so judgments about experience that we can only learn from experience, 
Or we can only know the world through a priori reasoning or analytic judgment that is completely devoid of any experience, that we can just think the world through our mind. Kant opposes that split and says, why can't it be both? So he says that maybe there's such a thing as synthetic a priori knowledge. Now you might think if you're following along closely here, why doesn't he say there can be analytic a posteriori knowledge? Well, the problem with that is that you can't have an analytic judgment that comes a posteriori. Because you can't have an analytic judgment that comes from experience because then it wouldn't be analytic. So he says that maybe there's a thing called synthetic a priori knowledge. So what that means is for him a way to think about the possibility of experience a priori. So he uses the principles of the a priori to think about experience itself and asks, how is it possible that we are able to have experience at all? What is it within us that we can only think about a priori that makes experience possible? So it's through that that we land kind of sketches what uh, Kant is doing, which is pretty much positioning the a priori as the way, as the way to think through all experience. But I will say that Kant doesn't really just do that because he also really privileges the a posteriori or the synthetic, uh, but I'm not going to go into a big critique here. It's just You should read the first critique and you, you'll get a better sense of that. Um, but anyways, to stick here more with what Land is doing, Land says that it is modernity is indicative of this Kantian approach that tries to remove itself from all experience and to just think about the world through knowledge, that it is able to justify its treatment of the other. It is able to erase the other in that process because it can then say, well, I don't need to know anything about you because I know it all because of my, you know, rational faculties of knowing. So we don't actually need to engage with one another. I know everything I need to know which Land says is extremely problematic. So he then extends this from Kant to uh, the work of Claude Lévi-Strauss, who's a French kind of um, anthropologist thinker who is instrumental for um, his study of semiotics and structuralism, who for Land does something very similar. So in, um, in Lévi-Strauss, Land presents that there are two ways to think about uh, food for... Um, kind of quote-unquote primitive people. So there was either normal food that came from, you know, one particular group from themselves, so food they cultivated, food they hunted or whatever, uh, that is contrasted with rich food that comes from the other. So the other is the one that brings rich food. Now what this does for land is, again, like Kant, homogenize what the other can be because they are subsumed then under the category of rich food, which then stands in for them. Or like in Kant, like our a priori reasoning stands in for the people themselves. So this dynamic in Levi-Strauss, that is ex exchanging food, also extends to other domains. Specifically, Land uh, considers how in Levi-Strauss he presents that women are used as commodities they weren't really commodities then for the Marxist out there. We get it. 
commodity is something different. It only comes about at a certain phase of production. But just bear with me. I use the term commodity because they're exchanged as a kind of good that house um, a potential that you know they don't naturally have. They're just bestowed with culturally. And women are entered into this trade as a means to prohibit incest. So you give up your women for other women that you can then mingle with, that you can then reproduce with, thereby removing the possibility of incest or uh, kind of sequestering it. And this exchange for Levi-Strauss, and Land picks up on this, is called dual organization. So it's dual because it freezes the difference and maintains separation with kinship, but encourages a kind of economic collaboration. So the other is frozen. The other is just uh, seen as the site for a possible economic uh, exchange. So we get, you know, the erasure of women in that, but also we get the erasure of the culture generally from one culture to another, which, you know, Levi-Strauss normalizes and says, yeah, I guess this is just the way it is. Like, that's just how things go. So for Land, Levi-Strauss, you know, participates in this by naturalizing it to some extent. But then he goes back to Kant to say that in the three critiques, so Kant had three critiques, it was a critique of pure reason, the critique of judgment, the critique of practical reason, um, not in that order, I don't think, but anyways, uh, Land says that each one of those participated in some way to justify the system we find ourselves in, that is the patriarchal, neocolonial, capitalist accumulation one. So he says that, or he tells us exactly how they do that. So this is on, in my version, from pages 74 to 75, where he says that if the first critique corresponds to an appropriative economy or commodification, and the second critique corresponds to imperial jurisdiction, the third critique corresponds to the exercise of war at those margins of the global system that continue to resist both the market and the administration. So here's an example. Uh, out of Kant, one of the kind of crucial ideas that Land picks up on is the idea of the categorical imperative. So the categorical imperative is the idea that something isn't considered right unless all people consider it to be right. Now that is all good and well, uh, unless you actually consider the fact that a lot of people don't consider it right. Now how do you get around that? Well, you could see them as being less than people, see them as being less than human, and therefore not deserving or not even having a say in that possible uh, vote. But fundamentally, for land, no such truth can be arrived at. There's no such thing that anyone would, everyone would say is always true all the time. So he says, Land says that that is just a way to kind of justify terrible actions. Because if you can say, we have this uh, objective, universal kind of litmus test for the validity of an action, and we all agree upon it, and we don't really care what you people have to say because you aren't really people, then you can justify some pretty horrific things. So in Kant for land, there is the replication of a kind of otherness that is brought to the forefront, yet w wanting to be forgotten. And land traces this to an, another more, uh, like an epistemological critique, in that he presents this as being um, emblematic of Kant's theoretical project. So I'm going to talk about that for a minute, uh, and it might seem kind of confusing, but I'll try to be as clear as I can. In the first critique, 
critique of pure reason, Kant says that pure reason is is guided by illusion. That is, that is, it is guided by um, falsity. So he gives examples where he says that what he calls the antinomies of pure reason, that is the problems or the um, paradoxes, I guess, in a sense of pure reason. He gives the example of like the uh, justification of the existence of God, where he says that someone who thinks that God exists can only do so by claiming to know God, which Kant says can't do that because that would rely upon some kind of knowledge that extends beyond what humans are capable of. And then someone who says that God does not exist also does that for Kant because they must have some knowledge of the uh, divine that you know no, no human can actually possess. So Kant has a problem with these two approaches because they cancel each other out pretty much. Neither of them can claim a kind of truth to that. So he then, what might appear to be a, an ending of difference, that is a kind of getting rid of these dialectical problems, these, these antinomies as he calls them, and he goes through his own big argument to kind of present the real uh, problem, what can really be found from these two uh, differing approaches, and there are four of them, four different antinomies he presents. But without going into that too much, um, he tries to do away with them. But Land correctly identifies that it appears as though he just supplants them with his own uh, antinomies, his own kind of dialectical configurations. So, for example, we see emerge in Kant for Land uh, various different splits, like the split between the phenomenon and the noumenon, split between concept, intuition, between analysis and synthesis that for Land signals to him that in Kant, there is the maintenance of a kind of otherness that never really goes away. And by virtue of that, he then contributes in that very same uh, framework of, of otherness or othering. And it is no surprise that capitalism exploits that. Capitalism takes that on. So everything that falls outside of that form then for land kind of houses a potential so all people that are, do not uh, are not appropriated by that form then kind of resist commodification because that logic is so well integrated into the capitalist imaginary because the capitalist imaginary imminently that is within itself produces the image of the other that it can exploit so any people that fall outside of that are then can be free of that exploitation. But of course, land isn't naive. Like he says that, um, he says that racism, you know, still permeates even against those people that haven't yet to be thought according to the metropole's logic. Anyone who's just perceived as different. And that's how the metropole in this way has come to just teach people how to treat difference. Anyone that is different is meant to be treated in a certain way qua the way they are like just however they are they are meant to be treated negatively and hence we see the development of a kind of xenophobia that is a fear of otherness that perpetuates a kind of incestual dynamic of the in inside that is the maintenance of a kind of incestual um interbreeding among people so in to combat this he opposes it with a kind of socialist politics but he says that this socialist politics has to also keep in mind that 
uh, nations are not maintainable because nations are what participate in this framework. They are complicit with it. So in order for a socialist politic to be effective, it must do away with this idea of the nation because the nation is what contributes in this kind of racist patrilineal politics, which would correspond uh, to him or with him to him to a Deleuzean, Guattarian uh, idea of deterritorialization that is a kind of uprooting of um, the, the fascist roots of the nation in favor of a kind of limitless possibility where people are not bound by the image ascribed to them via, um, via the capitalist logic of exploitation coming out of the modernity, the modernity coming out of the Enlightenment thinkers, uh, and instead you know, propelling people into perpetual new places, which is kind of roadmap to the most creative enterprise ever for a kind of Deleuzean, Deleuzeau-Guattarian dynamic. And he says that because this, this patrilineal dynamic is such a strong part of it, that only a properly feminist politics can really get at this problem too. But he says we have to be careful because, you know, in many cases, feminist politics are co-opted by you know, liberal efforts to, you know, uh, kind of just give women jobs, right? You know, give women CEO positions, make them generals, make them military people, and then the problem will go away. Uh, so he says we have to obviously be very careful about that. And that this feminist politics for him cannot shy away from violence. Like it must be on the front lines, disturbing things. And it's not just to be conducted by women, like it's men in favor of a feminist politics. But above all, and this is the kind of point he ends us on, is that we must abolish Kantianism. <laughs> Which is good. I mean, it's. I guess that's more or less like what we have here. I want to thank Liam for that recommendation, as I really quite like this text. Uh, it's nice, short, and sweet, and I plan to do more from Lance Corpus here, from Fang Numina. Uh, but if anyone has any recommendations like you can uh hit me up through patreon and i'll do my best to get to any you recommend um i'm very flexible with what i do uh i won't do anything that's like fascist so don't try um but anything else like would be would be great so for those that listen this far i guess i give a shout out to my other patrons like uh nicholas and um and uh um, Salai, who helped keep this thing going, uh, and anyone else that wants to contribute, I'll definitely give you a shout out. Uh, but yeah, for anyone that listened this far, if you, I hope you got something out of it. If not, tell me what I did wrong.